Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Oakland, California. Welcome to Sound Design Live. Today, my guest is the author of Live Audio, The Art of Mixing a Show, and has toured internationally with LaRue and Amy Winehouse, among others. So, Dave, thanks for being here. You're welcome. So I have a lot of questions about ClearCom systems, monitor bleed, ground lifting amplifiers, testing electrical systems, and how you got your first jobs. But first, I want to talk about work ethic for a minute. Um, okay. This came up for me because it's one of the very first things in your book. Um, yeah. The very first chapter of your book has a job description that I'm going to read because it's kind of entertaining. Uh, <laughs> If you like semi-darkness, long hours of boredom, long hours of work, no social life, no love life, heavy lifting, getting your white gloves dirty and a good laugh, this is the job for you. <laughs> and I feel like there are two contrasting ways to look at that. Um, yeah. Ten years ago, someone told me something similar, but I dismissed it because I was inexperienced and you know chomping at the bit. Then after about six years of working professionally, I got burned out and really started to hate that kind of stuff, you know, the heavy lifting and the long hours and those things that are physically and emotionally straining. Yeah. I had no idea when I was 23 that there might actually come a time when I would want regularity in my relationships or finances. I tried to become more specialized to avoid the shitty parts of work on live events, but it, it never worked, you know, Partly because I moved around a lot and kept starting over, but mostly because shitty is relative and, and there will always be a lot of work to put up a show. I, I feel like the better conditions I find myself in, the more I judge everything. So I started Sound Design Live in part to help myself and others learn to deal with these conditions we work in. And I've learned that the number one killer for me is attitude. So if I go into a job with resentment, like I don't really want to be there, or fear, I'm afraid of how long it's going to take or how hard it's going to be, I'm going to end up seeing problems and feel pain everywhere. Okay, so sorry for the monologue, but but tell me how you've retained your love for the work and, I don't know, happiness in life. Um, it's an interesting question. Um, I... I'm not sure it's been continuous happiness, and it hasn't. It's definitely it definitely hasn't been a continued love of uh, of what I do. I've hated it um, uh, from time to time. Um, you know, when you when you're stuck with the same people for two years, it can be a bit trying. You know, um, especially when you haven't got a lot of time off, and you know, and you're getting shit from home for not being for not being at home. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but somebody's got to pay the bills, so you know, it's kind of swings and roundabouts, isn't it? Um, uh, I suppose. Uh, you know, yeah, shitty is shitty is relative, but actually, they, they were the best times of my life um, when you know I didn't have the commitments that I have now. Um, you know, when I was in my early twenties, jumping in a van, you know, that would break down on various motorways anywhere in Europe, that um, you'd have to sit there for hours and on uh, hours on end waiting for a tow truck to come pick you up to take you to a show. Um, but you know, it was kind of that uh, kind of. Um, I suppose roderadery, you know, for want of a better word, having like you know, being there with everybody. You're all in the same boat together. You're all young, and 
you know, relatively carefree and you just go and have a laugh. And that's what, you know, that's what, that's what music, well, music isn't about a laugh, but, you know, that's what touring is about. It's, you know, having fun together, having an emotional experience and sharing that with the audience uh, that you're playing to that night. And that's, I suppose for me, you know, that's what, that's what keeps, that's, that's the spark. And that's the spark that keeps the fire burning, you know. And you're right, attitude is it is very important. But you know, you can get you can get stuck up your own ass. But actually, you know, as a <laughs> as, as a as a sound engineer, you know, you're part of your well. Your job is to make it as, as sound as good as you can. And sometimes you don't have all the best kit. So what you're going to do? Moan about it or get on with your job? I, yeah, I don't see any point in getting stressed about it. Yeah, you know, um, it, it is what it is. These things happen, and it's and it's part and parcel of being on the road. You know, things will go wrong, and if you stress about them, then you're not really doing yourself any favors or anybody around you any favors. So, you know, just chill. I'm not going to talk about your book too much here because I have a complete review coming out in a couple of weeks after this interview comes out. Okay. But basically in the book Live Audio, you take the reader through the process of concert audio production. Um, yes. Is there anything you want to say about the book before I jump into some more specific questions? I mean, I, I kind of wanted the book to, to be a kind of more of a guide than a than a manual you know or a, mm-hmm. a, some kind of textbook even even though i mean people do use it as a textbook um but for me it was it was that kind of process of sort of holding somebody's hand through a show you know um if you've never done a show before that was that kind of how i wrote it was the idea was you've never done a show before so um you pick the book up and you can go okay so this is what i do first this is what i do next and Blah blah blah, and that's kind of you know, that's that's how I wanted it to 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 come across. So I've worked in some nice theaters with multi-channel Clearcom systems, but yeah. I've never quite understood how that works in a concert environment where the front of house mixer needs to make his ears available most of the time. Um, for people who don't know, Clearcom is a brand of internal communication systems. That's often what you see the stage manager and lighting op and camera ops using when they have headsets. Um, But how do you make that happen in an outdoor festival setting, for example, when you can't be wearing a headset all the time? Uh, Well, bizarrely, I I mean, when I go, if, um, which is a very rare occurrence, I go into a theater and mix a theater show, I cannot wear a headset. (laughs) You know, I'm being shouted at for like, put your headset on. You're cute. Oh, God, I can't do it. Um, (laughs) Because, you know, I, I, you know, all all that communication um, between the stage and the sound console, uh, the front of house console, is is done uh, usually via a, a shout system where there's a, there's an open speaker with a microphone at the monitor desk, and then the monitor guy just shouts up to you on that on that little speaker, and that's how a lot of that communication is done. Um, and uh, I, but I mean during during a show, you know. Even if I've got a radio, you know, you sometimes walk around, you see everybody wearing these horrible radio things, uh, putting their trousers down their ass and stuff. <laughs> and, 
hanging over, you know, these horrible little springy coil mouthpiece things hanging off their shirt and exposing their chest hair. Um, they're horrible. I hate them. Um, yeah, and, but, I mean, somebody can always get hold of you. And, uh, yeah, I don't like it. So the, even that goes, you know, in a drawer away. You know, I'm mixing the show. And, uh, you know, nothing's going to stop me from listening to what I have to do for that whole set. You know, until it's done, and then I can, and I'll go back on, on whatever kind of comms that I'm given. So, but generally, it sounds like technically it's pretty basic. You just have a mic yeah. set up for at front of house and at and at the monitor board. You each mm-hmm. have a speaker, and it's yeah. just this two way communication. So you can just yell into the mic and ask yeah. them something. Yeah, yeah, and there's and generally you always have a, a talk to stage. Mic, so you have a, a mic at the front, uh, another mic at the front of house console that talks to all the all the monitors. So when you're when your techs are setting up on stage, uh, there'll be a, a microphone that you can talk to them with, so you can go around the drum kit and say, "Oh, that mic doesn't sound right," or "Yeah, that's great," and you know you can line check everything properly. Aside from the war zone that is mixing stage monitors, yeah. do you think there's really any place for graphic EQs anymore now that we have really nice parametric equalizers? I mean, we've always had really nice parametric equalizers. Nothing's changed, um, but we've now got digital ones. Personally, um, I, I never use a graphic. I haven't used a graphic for years unless I have to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you always see them in an analog setup. Um, so and, common, I, I yeah. That's why I'm yeah. asking is because they're still so ubiquitous. But I I never want to use them, and I don't know why they're still so common. I mean, they're, they're rubbish. You know, they're they're fixed <laughs> band, fixed yeah. cue. Uh, the only thing that isn't fixed is the gain. Um, and you know, it's <laughs> it's never 116 hertz. I mean, is it? Right. It's, it's no, always, right. you know, 119 or whatever. Um, yeah, and I, I, you know, when I've been teaching my students, you know, they, uh, they, some of them have been going in for these uh, like listening tests, these critical listening things, where they they get played a frequency, and I have to I have to tell the uh, examiner what frequency it is, mm-hmm. and they're petrified of these things, and it's like, <laughs> guys, seriously, out of two, uh, out of twenty thousand frequencies, you're they're going to play. Um, 32. Right. So I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> yep. You know, it's seriously, it's, it's cool. <laughs> and uh, all of us, when you say it like that, they go, oh, oh yeah. Hmm. Okay. Can't be that bad. Exactly. You know, um, I mean, I've seen recently actually quite a few guys um, with racks and racks of graphics on, on their digital boards, which um, I suppose it, in a way it's just what, we've been used to for such a long time. Mm-hmm. A few of the um, digital consoles have uh, graphics just as standard in a, 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 in, on, all your out, on all your outputs. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the, the, the Midas system... Yeah, the know, Soundcraft uses, VI system. Uses, I mean, the, the, the Midas stuff, um, it... You've got like a rack of, of graphics using up DSP, mm-hmm. but I, I never use them and I can't disable them. <laughs> I don't use them either. <laughs> so uh, it, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. Drop like an earthquake. 
You can find relevant links and more information about today's interview by using the search box on sounddesignlive.com. While you're there, pick up the Sound Design Live ebook with the best material from my first two years of interviews with audio industry leaders. Can you give me some tips for dealing with monitor bleed from front of house in small to medium-sized venues? Um, in three of the places that I work regularly, the stage monitors throw a lot of low mids into the audience and really mess up with the vocal intelligibility. Well, a lot, uh, actually, a, a lot of that's to do with phase. Um, you know, if if you've got your PA um, time aligned to, I, ha- I hate using that term, time aligned to. But yeah, it's it, pretty bad. You know, we 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 don't align time. <laughs> that's <laughs> That's something Doctor Who does, um, but you know it's a phrase that we all use. So unfortunately, uh, you know, yeah, I have to use it. Um, you know, if you've got your PA time aligned to the stage correctly, you know, then if you've got all your waveforms moving forward from the back line all at the same time, then all that intelligibility gets much better. Um, whereas you know, if you if you think about these small and medium setups, you know, if nothing's time aligned, and including your monitors, then um, you're listening to, you know, the vocals at four, five, six, even more different times as they reach your ears from mm-hmm. from the stage, from the side fills, from wherever, from the acoustic vocal that's even shouting it in your general direction and then from the left speaker and then from the right speaker or however or where you're placed in the venue so if you can try and time align your entire stage and then time align your PA system to the the, the back line so as you know as that guitar is strummed that comes out the amplifier then it's also when the sound of the amp- from the amplifier reaches the front line of the wedges, then the wedge, then the sound of the guitar comes out the wedges, if you know what I mean, and the side fills, and then it then it goes into the audience, and then the then the PA is aligned to that. Then it's all moving forward at the same time, so you don't get, you shouldn't get what we call a transient smear, which is when. Uh, um, the leading edge of the waveform, you hear multiple versions of that. And that's how we, that's how we understand distance. I think that, that makes sense. And I, I hadn't thought of that with the stage monitors. And I think that'll help. But then once everything is aligned, won't I still have buildup in the low mids that are, that are um, coming from the stage, from the focal monitors, for example? You know, it's it's horses for courses, isn't it? If you've got if you've got wedges that kick out a lot of low mid, you know, what are we talking four hundred, three hundred around there? Then you know, maybe you can ask the monitor gentleman to kindly uh, remove some of those frequencies from his wedges if he doesn't mind awfully, um, uh, or you kind of part with it. So speaking of lead vocalists or monitors for vocalists, that is, I've never understood why lead vocalists often get two or three monitors pointed at their heads. It seems like that would just lead to phase problems. If one monitor isn't loud enough, why why not just get a bigger one? Yeah, I've never understood that myself either. Um, there's, there's, there's the other one where the, the lead singer's got in-ear monitors and three wedges. Oh my god! <laughs> and, 
and you know, there's, there'll be like three in front of him, and then two behind him, and some in ears. Um, it's like, what the hell, you know? Uh, uh, I mean, uh, sometimes, you know, the, the the way that some of these guys mix uh, mix these kind of three wedge setups is that in that center uh, wedge will be just vocal. So it would be a completely clean vocal, nothing else uh-huh. to mess that vocal up. And then on the outside pair, then that's where, that's where the singer will have his mix, you know. So, um, but, you know, if, you're, if, you, if you've got the same thing going through all three monitors, then uh, it just, you know, yeah, you're right. You, it does lead to a bit of uh, phase incoherence. What are you doing to protect your hearing, Dave? To be honest, I mean, I don't, um, I don't really go out anymore too much. Um, I have, I've got some earplugs. So, like, when I go out socially with my friends, um, you know, I've got some uh, c- completely clear earplugs that I mm-hmm. that I put in when I'm at, when I'm at a sh- obviously mixing a show. I can't um, really mix with anything in my ears, but I have noticed that. Um, Recently, like looking at like what level I'm mixing at, what level I'm comfortable in mixing at, it's around, you know, it's around 99 to 100 uh, dB, which, you know, I know guys that mix a lot louder than that. So, you know, I, I, that's 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 okay. But then everything, every, like every time you, every time you're listening to something, you're damaging your hearing. So it's it's kind of hard to not. Uh, have your, your hearing damaged, if you know what I mean. But sort of preventative measures, you know, really for me, it's. I, I mean, I don't go and see a band live, really, unless you know they're on just before or just after us. But I've got ear defenders, a proper big chunky pelters that I'll, uh, you know, if I'm setting up, I'll have those on. You know, I like setting up in nice, peaceful, quiet environment. <laughs> yes. You never know when the drummer's just all of a sudden going to hit something. I think I need to get some. I need to get some music played, like maybe some birds or some flowing water or something like that. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice kind of nice zen place to set up. <laughs> At least in my head, you know. And then you open your eyes and you're like surrounded by horrible, muddy, sweaty festival goers. <laughs> so I guess your your strategy is just then limiting your exposure because yeah. like, I guess these shows you're doing are I don't know forty five minutes to ninety minutes. The shortest show I'll do with with these bands is an hour, really, unless we're doing a festival slot and we're lower on down the bill. Then maybe it's kind of thirty sort of thirty five to sixty minutes if that's the case. But generally, you know, they're all. Um, at least an hour, if not two, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's quite it's quite a long time. But then you, the the other thing as well is that you know if you've got a nice clean PA system and you and you and it's nice and soft and it's not horrible to listen to, then it doesn't need to be it it, it doesn't actually need to be that loud. A lot of power in the in the mix, which is what we're after, which is why we have volume. Um, which is why a lot of sound guys mix quite loud, is to get the low mids feeling right. Um, so if, 
if you've pulled those out of your mix, because a lot of PA systems can't handle low, like low mids properly. Um, Cause you know, you need a, a kind of 15 uh, to 18 inch driver to create these, the proper waveforms. You can't, you can't do it by um, adding loads and loads of speakers to an array just to try and create your low mid. Cause you're, you're mucking with physics. Mm-hmm. Um, having a physical driver that you can, change the sound of and manipulate that then that's that's a good way of kind of creating all these low mids and these low mids are where you get a lot of the intimacy from from the music yes where you could yes where your rib cage starts rattling when you hear the chugging on the guitars that's where all that depth comes from it from the vocal um so when you have these frequencies in a in your pa system it all of a sudden doesn't See, it doesn't seem very loud any, anymore, but it's really powerful. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's kind of where we try and go when we start mixing louder, is trying to get that energy from those low mids. And then what, you kind of end up with this kind of harsh mess sometimes. That makes sense. Are you using any um, special microphones or equipment or techniques to try and build that kind of mix with your own work? Um, it's really about having a reference point. I've got some um, some Bayer Dynamic seven uh, seventies, um, which are lovely set of headphones, and just you know listening to music on those things are, are, are really nice. And I've got um, a set of UE uh, fives, Ultimate Ears molds. Um, and I've now started listening to all my music on on these things because they're just really sort of nice and subtle and soft, and um, there's not too much bottom end. Mm-hmm. So you can hear all the you can hear all the keys, like every single note that's being played, and the picking of strings and things like that. And that's you know that's that's all the detail in music. That's what you know. That's what you should be listening to. So, you know, when you go to a concert and you hear vocal and kick drum and then there's this kind of mush behind it, you know, is that really a sonic experience that we should be listening to? Right. You know? Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be picky. Uh, and, uh, but, and, it's not, and, it's not, and it's not always the engineer's fault because, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of things that go into putting a PA into a, into a room or into a field. Um, and you know, if you've got a, a bad system tech and you've got some uh, speakers blown and all sorts of things, and you know you, you, you're you're out to you're off to a bad start already. You know, having that reference point, I think, is is the most important thing. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't go and put on your favorite album at home and just turn up all the all, all the highs to right. listen to it like that, would you? <laughs> You know, you want to you want to have that experience. So, you know, why does it feel like we sometimes do that at live shows? I don't know. But also, it depends where you stand. You know, there are there are a lot of times at these festivals where mixed position is raised because it has to be to stay out the mud. Um, then, um, you, you know, you're 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 above the audience, and then you just get pelted in the ears by uh, by all these by all these harsh frequencies. Uh, and then when you go and stand down in the audience, it actually sounds okay. So you, you end up mixing this horrible mess, um, <laughs> but the audience are having a lovely time. So it's kind of, I hate it, but, you know, you ha- it's, it's about the audience. The audience have got to have a nice time. You know, if the audience aren't having a nice time, then there's no point you being there. 
Sound Design Live produces free audio podcast interviews with industry experts, product reviews of pro audio books, hardware, and software, and tutorials and articles on sound engineering, sound design, and sound system design and optimization. Subscribe today at sounddesignlive.com or by searching for Sound Design Live in iTunes or SoundCloud. Um, for some reason, I'm still confused about whether or not it is unsafe to defeat the ground plug on a piece of equipment. Uh, I've been in some situations where I've wanted to use a ground lift on a powered speaker, for example, to eliminate hum in the system that I yeah. assume is being caused by multiple paths to ground. Yeah. One engineer I work with says, don't ever do that. Uh, someone could get shocked and die. Another guy that I work with actually carries those around and uses them. And he says, oh, I wouldn't worry about it that much. The shock isn't that bad. Either way, obviously, <laughs> we don't want anybody to get shocked. But as I understand it, if you eliminate the ground, um, then if there's a short circuit in the equipment, then that voltage might travel through you to get to ground. So why do these things even exist? I mean, is that an acceptable way to eliminate hum? Is that really lethal? What do you do? Um, generally, I mean, you, you, you'd never lift the earth on a, on an amplifier as a kind of general rule. Um, but I, I mean, there are two in a, in a, in a, in a circuit, there's kind of two paths to ground, which is one is your neutral, uh, and, and the other one is, is your earth. Obviously the earth being, being the main one, which is just straight down, um, through it connects all it connects all the chassis together and all these other bits and pieces. So um, if but if your earth isn't connected on that piece of equipment, your chassis could then become live. You know, if there's a short somewhere mm-hmm. and it's and it's not being it's not being taken to ground, you become the conduit to ground, um, which is which uh, which is never a particularly good thing. Yeah, I mean you wouldn't you wouldn't do it on on, a, on an amplifier. But um, you know, when you've got things like um, XLR cables and you you need to lift the earth on on those, um, you know that's that's fairly common practice. Uh, the other thing actually is, like, for example, when you've got a bass player and and you've got a you've got an earth hum on the uh, on the guitar, um, so you lift the earth on the, on the DI box and then he goes over to the microphone and then he becomes a conduit between the guitar. And the microphone, because the guitar needs to ground itself, mm-hmm. so it keeps getting shocks. Um, so you, what you can do is um, it's called shunting, where you shunt the you shunt that extra uh, buildup of current um, down another line. So it's all because everything needs to have that common earth. So um, that's that's one way. I think that I think I even put that in my book. About I shunting. think you did. Yeah, you yeah. talked about shunting. So it sounds like shunting would be a second option, but then maybe the best solution instead of lifting a ground on a piece of equipment would be to run power from the main source so that you're not encountering uh, that, that second uh, path to a different ground. The thing is, um, you know, I mean, I, going around Europe, it's pretty rare to have these kind of problems. Uh, I have more problems with bits of kit in America than I do coming around, going around Europe. Um, I'm not sure why that is, but um, 
I've got um, all, I mean all our, all our all our equipment is what we call pack tested, which is you know making sure that you know the live and uh, the earth and the neutral are all in the right places. Uh, there's no short circuits, nothing's bleeding, and things like that. So all our equipment's tested before it goes away. Um, so we know it's all in good electronic power consuming condition um and then all the uh venues will pretty much you know have standard power supplies um which so when you're when you only plug in everything should be to, um top notch really um sometimes it isn't you know when you get to when you get to venues that are kind of half falling down uh yeah i'm mainly thinking about Older places, yeah, um, and maybe you have speakers spread out all across a venue, and you know it's it's. I'm I'm thinking of like uh, art galleries and spaces that aren't even necessarily set up for live events or or audio, and you just mm-hmm. you kind of just plug into wherever's closest. You're not really sure about the power, so yeah. But there's, there's another one about uh, about generators because you know if you've got us if you. If you've got that big metal stick that you drive into the ground, you know that's the ground for the generator. And some people say you should do it. Some people say you shouldn't do it. I mean, to to be honest, it's uh, you know it's not my area of uh, expertise. I only know a very sort of limited uh, amount about that. But um, yeah, yeah, electricity is a bit of a, a bit of a dark art. But you know, if if you have an earth problem then if you've been doing shows and all the equipment's been working fine and then you go into a, an older venue and you start getting all these issues, then it's not your kit, it's the venue. And, the, you know, um, it, it, can be, it can be a very dangerous thing, really. Are, are you doing any uh, alignment and optimization with like, any software like Smart or um, SatLive when you get to a venue? I use my ears. All right. Play yeah. some Zeppelin. No. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> um, I, 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 I can't get my head around half these computer programs, and I really don't want to rely on a computer that hasn't got any ears telling me what I'm listening to because um, the computer doesn't feel. Uh, maybe if I was in in the Terminator movies, it'd probably tell me differently, but as far as I'm concerned, a, a computer doesn't feel. You know, and and what we're trying to do is move emotion from the stage to the audience. So, if I'm looking at a computer, saying, "Oh, the computer's telling me that there's too much 500 in the room," and I'm taking that out till the computer says okay, then you know, am I listening to that or am I watching that? So, you know, and and when it comes when it comes to alignment, you know, you you can. You can kind of feel when it's when it's right, you know. I'm, I mean, I'm quite, I'll quite quite easily go in and stand there, and I can just feel if the subs are late or early, and you know, we can then move them accordingly. I was in, I went to a, a, a venue in in Bristol, and I've been going in and out there for for years, and I was working with this like electronic um, DJ, um, full live band setup. And I'm just playing some test tracks through the PA. And um, I turned around to the system guy and just said to him, the subs thing a little bit, 
early. Can you delay them by like three milliseconds? It's like well, nothing's changed since last time you were in here. It's like, yeah, I, I'm just not feeling it today. And so he went upstairs to the processors and just added three milliseconds. And then all of a sudden there was like all this punch that had never been in the room before. And he's like, where'd that all come from? You know, and it's just, it's those, it's like just those little things. And that's experience though, isn't it? So having the mouth to kind of do that, you know, understanding how it should feel. And it's going back to having that reference point again, you know, and then having the technical ability to work out how to solve it. Maybe, especially for someone like me, those kinds of software and tools are really helpful when you don't have that kind of confidence or experience so that I can make those time measurements. You have to remember that they're a tool and that it's not, you know, it's not what you're listening to. So to rely on them heavily, uh, I think, is a, is a dangerous thing. But, you know, to, to use them as a tool to help you um, get your subs in line is fine. Are you doing any mixing or processing live with your laptop out, outside of um, the mixing board that you take with you or that's at the venue? No. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Um, you know, I, I had a, I had a, a copy of, um, what was it, Waves, uh, the Waves Rack. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the you know what? Mix Rack, that's it, yeah. And, you know, I, it's pointless. Uh, I mean, yeah, I I kind of get. Yeah, it's great having all carrying all these plugins around with you. I mean, I I don't. I tend not to use anything anymore. Just a bit of reverb um, and some delay, and that's pretty much about it. And that's kind of standard um, in most venues. So um, and in most consoles. So you know, I don't really see the point in carrying these kind of things around with me. I barely use gates, and and I'm barely using any compression. So, because everything, you know, if you're if you're mixing like loads of electronic stuff, it's already compressed somewhere. So, if you're adding another another layer of compression to everything, unless it's kind of if your levels are all over the place, and it's kind of limiting, um, you know, the kind of danger zone when those keys come in and they're about 20 db louder than the song before then you know that's kind of needs must but you know i mean i like a few years ago i spent a lot of money buying up some really nice bits of analog kit which maybe was a bit stupid but uh, yeah i've seen a kind of move back to some analog gear recently i just uh, these three festivals i just did last weekend each one of them had an XL4 on the uh, on the stage, and that's mm-hmm. the first time in years I've actually been to a festival and they've had an analog desk as wow. uh, as, as the front of house desk for a long time. It's great. In your 20s, you were working full-time at a music venue and from there made some connections and started touring. Yeah. Can you think of some key things that you think you did that really helped your career to move from just smaller shows to start doing bigger shows and uh, bigger tours? And I don't know, can, can you think of any times when you really made a decision or promoted yourself in a way that seemed like it took you to the next level? Um, well, kind of moving out of the, um, 
moving out of the the venue into touring work, it, it was kind of like uh, a lot of um, situations that happened around me, not because of me or anything else. It was just other other people doing other things and going off. Um, that kind of I ended up being the guy that mixed at this venue all the time. So I just got really good at mixing in that room. And then there were two or three local bands that were coming through our venue on a regular basis. And they started going out on tour. So um, they're like, can you, can you come and mix us? We can't pay you, but we'd really like you to come out on tour. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah, of course. Mum, can I have 20 pounds? I'm going on tour. And um, <laughs> so uh, off, I, off I went. And, you know, that was it, you know, sleeping on people's floors. And, that, yeah, that was, that was the start of my, uh, my hobo existence, I think. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so, that you know, it was kind of those instrumental things that were happening around me, not because of me. Um, that kind of I ended up in in being at the right place at the right time. So the the, the first tour that I went out out on uh, was with a band supporting this other band, and then we get to do a show in Wales, and I meet this guy who is mixing front of house for this other band, this headline act, and we get chatting, and is you know we get on really well. Um, we exchange numbers. And um, after that tour's finished, um, a few months later, I, I kind of thought, well, actually, I really enjoy this. I should try and get some more touring work. Um, I'd been on a, on a couple of tours with some other local bands in between this, but you know that was kind of the initial one. That was my initial first ever tour. So I phoned this guy that I'd met, and um, he was like, "Oh yeah, I've got. Um, I've actually got a gig. I think you'd be. I think you kind of put my personality would fit in." Um, and it turned out to be a, a Welsh rap band. Mm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, called Goldie Looking Chain. Um, we had two trips to America, uh, and on the second trip, we did a show at Universal um, Village for the record company. They had, they had this lovely little uh, like square in the middle of the um, and outside square uh, where they have a barbecue every day, and like they're working on these different acts. The band came on and. Their the last song is a song called Your Mother's Got a Penis. Your Mother's Got a Penis. Your Mother's Got a Penis. <laughs> and pretty much basically just managed to offend everybody in their record company. And uh, that was our last trip to um, America. <laughs> that was the end of that. <laughs> that was the end of that, yes. Um, yeah, you just didn't get it. <laughs> Um, but you know they were they were massive in the UK, but nowhere else. You know, we went to Japan, didn't get it. Uh, went to Australia, didn't get it. Went all over Europe, didn't get it. You know, and it's just one of those unfortunate things. But in the UK, they got really big really quickly. But it was you know it was a, more of a kind of comedy act. So it's the truth, man. Um, but they were great fun. So, um, but because of that, we and I, you know, I ended up doing some pretty big shows I went from you know mixing on the main stage at uh, Reading and Leeds festivals and some of the some of the big festivals um, throughout the UK and Europe so and that was pretty much within 
a year of actually saying to myself, I'm going to tour as a full-time job. Um, so it sounds like it was really yeah. just this one main connection and yeah. where you called him up and said, hey, I need some work. And then yeah. you got working with one band and that kind of set you up for the rest of your career? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, okay, and it, cool. it was, it, yeah, I mean, it was, that was a really kind of instrumental bit. But it was because we got on, you know, it was a really... It was that was that was the key point is the fact that we we got on and we could hang out together and we could have a laugh and you know he was confident enough that I had the ability to do the job. Um, but if if he didn't like me, he wouldn't have said come and do this gig. So okay, well it sounds know. like then the advice is to look for people who you work well with. Uh, yeah, and that that includes the artists as well. So, Dave, what projects do you have coming up? Any new writing or touring you can talk about? I, yeah, there's a, there's kind of a lot on the on the horizon um, at the moment. Yeah, it's kind of my schedule is pretty busy. So, touring wise, um, I've just uh, started with a band called the Bloody Beetroots. Um, so, yeah, so I've got them, and uh, I've got some stuff with a guy called DJ Fresh. There's another band called James, who I'm mixing for at the moment, um, who were pretty big in the 90s. Uh, and, you of know, course, just... I know them. I love that album, uh, okay. Laid. That's it. Yeah, everyone knows Laid. Yeah. Uh, she only comes when she's on top. But she only comes when she's on top. Yeah. I didn't know they were still around. They are still around, and occasionally they venture uh, across the Atlantic. Um, uh, I do believe that they're looking maybe at doing because they're they're kind of they're kind of bumbling through a new album at the moment. So uh, maybe next year we will be coming out to America. That would be really wow, good. Wow, that would be great. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's kind of that's kind of the touring stuff. So that's kind of keeping me pretty busy as it is. Uh, and I'm writing uh, the follow-up to live audio. Dead audio. <laughs> it should be. <laughs> um, yeah. So that and and that's uh, I kind of been playing around with it for a, a couple of years now. Actually, since I since I finished the first since I finished the first book because I always had I had a few ideas that I wanted to put into 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 live audio the art mixing a show um, but the concepts weren't sort of fully formed yet because they were kind of as I was writing it all these these ideas these extra ideas kind of came into my head um, and so I've just been trying these kind of a few bits and pieces out on some of my students um, well, give me an idea. What what is? Uh, give me an example of something you're trying. Well, um, so one of the ideas is that um, thinking about the frequency spectrum as a set of emotions rather than tangible numbers. Um, so when you hear a frequency, how does it make you feel? Does it make you feel? You know, does it make you feel sad or hollow or? Um, does it feel? Does it give the sound a, a kind of sparkle or a warmth and a depth? You know those, those kind of things. So when you're listening to something, um, seeing how it how it makes you feel, and then manipulating frequencies around these different areas make that particular sound 
you know, either a positive or a negative or a neutral emotion. So I'm kind of playing around with the tentative title of the chemistry of a concert, you know, that kind of, that kind of vibe, you know. Um, uh, Yeah, we'll see how that comes out. If uh, if the publishers like it, we'll see. Dave's website is dave-swallow.com. And yeah. the site for his book is liveaudiobook.com. That's the one that came out uh, a couple of years ago. Dave, thank you so much for talking with me today. Um, besides those places, where would you like for people to follow your work online? Uh, the website is probably the, the, the best kind of thing. I try and put little anecdotes of uh, touring stuff up there along with other articles that I write. Sound design. Hey, this is Nathan. I love working on Sound Design Live. Support my mission to create the best entertaining and educational tutorials, articles, and tools for sound engineers by donating $1 right now using the donate link in the description for this podcast. Averaging 1,000 plays per episode means that $1 is all it takes to keep the show classy. Also, being supported by my listeners allows me to produce creative work for the public domain without worrying about copyright. Please share it freely so that others may benefit from it. 